Isaiah chapter 54 and reading from verse 1. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. Thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colours, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established, thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals and the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. I would like to begin our thoughts today 
by drawing attention to Isaiah's little phrase in the opening verse. More are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. More are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. I suspect these words puzzled Isaiah's first readers and it might still appear strange to us that more offspring should be given to the desolate or the abandoned wife than when she still had her husband. The reference is of course prophetic and it's probably a reference to the experience of the disciples that were left behind or left alone when the Lord Jesus ascended to his Father's presence. And at a time when the church comprised relatively few believers at that time. The disciples, of course, when the Lord left and returned to heaven, they felt bereft, they felt leaderless, they felt desolate. And what wild swings of hopes and fears these disciples must have experienced over this short period of time. You'll remember, first of all, they, they had these grand aspirations that they would reign with Jesus in his earthly kingdom. And then their hopes were dashed when the Lord was crucified. And then their expectations rose again when they learned that Christ had risen from the dead, only to be shaken again when Christ told them that he was leaving to return to his Father in heaven. These are the desolate ones. This is the desolate one. This is the church desolate of whom Isaiah spoke. The Lord's bride, alone in a world surrounded by her foes, feeling vulnerable and abandoned. And yet had not the Lord said that he must go away so that the Holy Spirit could come? Had they not understood the significance of the Great Commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel? This worldwide work of evangelism is what Isaiah is referring to as the children of the desolate. And it was only now commencing. From this very small beginning, Many, many more saints would be gathered than ever had been numbered among the Old Testament remnant people. There was to be a, a flowering, a blossoming, an explosion, if you like, of the gospel in the days of the apostles and thereafter as the Lord gathered his people to himself. And in this way, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. And in this way, his references to the, the tents in which the church dwells being enlarged and expanded find their meaning and their true significance. But I want to make another application of this little phrase to you as well. And just leave this as a thought perhaps a little bit more personal and perhaps a little bit more intimate. Because what was true of the church in the days of the apostles 
has, I think, parallels still in a continuing way for the Lord's people. Individually speaking, it is in times of extreme adversity when we feel desolate. It is at times when we feel under strain, under stress, at times when we feel alone, at times when we feel weakest. That the Lord comes and speaks to his people. It is at times when we feel most threatened and that the challenges of our life are likely to overwhelm us. That the Lord blesses most to our souls, his gifts and his graces. Employs these trials and difficulties to enlarge our faith. It is at times when we are most tried and tested that like Peter, when the storm is, is, is around us and the waves are the highest and we are ready to sink, that the cry, Lord help me, is uttered with the greatest need and suggests the most sincerity and discovers the most precious response from the Lord. It's then that we truly learn our need of him and learn to seek him and to find him when he is ready to save. So let me just say this by way of application in this opening thought of the desolate woman having more children. No one likes trial. No one likes suffering. No one likes hardship. But these things come to us all. They come to God's church. They come to God's people. They come to us individually. If they are not here now, they are coming soon. And when they do, as they must, let us expect in the trial, in the difficulty, on the stormy sea, tempest-tossed, let us expect, as with the case of the desolate woman, the Lord to bless us more in adversity than he does in our apparent prosperity. More in the days of our trouble than in the times of stability. The hymn writer says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Today I want to take three headings from this portion of God's word and while recognising that I cannot begin to do justice to such a rich passage as this, I felt this especially last week and I feel it again this week, I cannot do justice to such a rich passage. I feel I feel in these chapters that we're dwelling in the summer pastures of the high mountains of Isaiah's prophecy. Nevertheless, as the Lord enables, we'll try to gather some flowers as we find them. So I've got three headings uh, and, and, and they're, they're coming up in a moment. But I, I want us to note again just by way of introduction to these three headings, I want us to note again the central theme 
of God's covenant of grace and peace in this passage. The promises that God was going to do his people good. The promises that were given to an Old Testament people to comfort them in their troubles as they looked forward to see, yes, it'll be hard, but God will be faithful to his word. And that knowledge, that faith that they had in God's faithfulness was a spiritual comfort to their souls in their own troubles, in their own times. It's this central theme of God's covenant purpose, his grace and his peace that undergirds Isaiah's comforting ministry to his age. And I've mentioned a a lot about the covenant recently because Isaiah has been revealing a lot about it. And here in this chapter also, Isaiah, or the Lord tells Isaiah and Isaiah tells us how firm, how established, how permanent are his promises, is his purpose of grace. And he says explicitly, the covenant of my peace shall not be removed. The promises of my salvation shall not be taken away. The foundation of our hope is fixed and sure and certain. All these comforting, reassuring messages that Isaiah was supplying to his generation are built on the promises of God to send a saviour to redeem his people and these promises flow from the love and mercy of God displayed in the covenant of peace. He calls it the covenant of my peace. That eternal agreement formed and settled between the persons of the Godhead to reconcile the elect and redeem God's people that were sold under sin. So this is the context, this is the this is the, the, the foundation upon which these three headings uh, uh, come to us today. It is within this everlasting covenant that we learn these three things. First of all, our maker is our husband. Our maker is our husband. Secondly, Christ has a heart towards us of everlasting kindness. And thirdly, all God's elect people shall be taught of the Lord. So I'm going to take each of these headings one by one, move through them and trust that the Lord will give us some some sweetness, some blessing, some comforts from these thoughts as we seek uh, his face and and his mercy. Here then is our first one. Uh, Our maker is our husband. I've said often as we've progressed through these chapters in this book of Isaiah, I've, I've mentioned numerous times about the amazing language used by Isaiah and perhaps more even than the words 
is the concepts, the images, the powerful images and the types that he employs to describe and explain and convey his message to his readers. And of course, we attribute this to the Holy Spirit, by whose inspiration Isaiah wrote. Nevertheless, the phrases are theologically profound and powerful. They, they, they have wrapped up in them such wonderful heavenly truth. And what an extraordinary statement this is. Thy maker is thine husband. Where on earth did Isaiah get a notion like that? How can you just write something like that down? Thy maker is thy husband. Now, we know at once that we're speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal word who created all things. Without him, nothing was created. And it's not my intention today to speak about creation, but we know it from this little phrase here that neither Isaiah nor his readers doubted that God made us. God is our maker. And as such, we have a duty to honour, serve and obey him. And yet the surprising and astonishing thing is that Isaiah tells us that this maker, this Lord Jesus Christ, our maker, is also our husband. He not only rules us as a master, he has joined himself to us as a husband. And there is all the difference in the world between a ruling master and a loving husband. By taking our flesh, by becoming incarnate, Jesus assumed our nature and married himself or joined himself to us so as to represent us as our head and our husband. And it's important that we grasp the extent of this. Christ, now we're talking about this everlasting covenant, this eternal covenant. Christ chose his bride in the eternal covenant and he asked for, individually, he asked for those people to be given to him and was granted them. You know what, I'm going to change that. I'm going to start speaking about us was granted us by his father. He undertook to represent us and to satisfy every righteous demand, every just obligation, every required duty falling to us and to pay every debt levied upon us as fallen creatures. And in this life, the Lord Jesus Christ, by coming and joining himself to us, 
represents us in every aspect of our life before God. So that in his life, and more especially by his death, Christ bore our sin and carried our sorrow and made restitution for us under the eye of divine justice in a formal legal capacity as our representative. And not only is he our maker, but he is our husband. And as our husband, he bears this formal official responsibility because a husband was bound for the debts of his wife. But of course, there's more to a husband-wife relationship than merely that suretyship that the husband uh, has as his in his representative role as our husband Christ loves us as well as our husband Christ cares for us and watches over us and protects us and nurtures and provides for us as he does his own flesh because we are his own flesh these two have become one flesh he looks after us as his own body. And in assuming our nature and taking our flesh, in taking our humanity, our weakness, our husband feels our need, understands our frailty, sympathises in our trials and is touched with the feelings of our infirmity. And knowing what we are, and knowing what we are able to bear, he will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. And again, because he is our husband, and having love and, and, and care, and to make provision for us, he has gone to prepare a place for us in his father's house and will come again and receive us unto himself. So that being our husband encapsulates so many fertile, fruitful, wonderful thoughts that Isaiah is binding up in this beautiful phrase that he sets before us, in stooping to take our nature, in humbling himself to dwell in the body of our flesh, in condescending to call himself our husband, all within the covenant purposes of grace and peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, our maker, has wholly and completely fulfilled every duty to God. On our behalf, answered every demand of the law and satisfied every need of his people. And all is done and will be seen to be done when the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. That's what we look forward to. That is what lies ahead for the bride of Christ. Our husband is coming to take us to the marriage 
feast of the Lamb. And the wife making herself ready is not that she does anything to adorn herself or or make herself righteous or anything like that. It simply means that as the Lord has committed to his church, remember what we were saying about the desolate being more having more children as the lord has committed to his church the gift of preaching and ministering the gospel one to another so every last member will have been brought into that body that distinct particular named and known body the bride of christ every last member will have been brought through the preaching of the gospel and revelation tells us Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then it just wraps it off by saying, these are the true sayings of God. However, this is the, this is the, that's our first point. The Lord, our maker, is our husband. But there's more. He goes on to say, That Christ's heart, the heart of our husband, is a heart of everlasting kindness. And I just could not pass over that phrase in this chapter. Um, This is the only time in our authorised version that the phrase everlasting kindness is used. So... I wanted to nail it down. I wanted to bring it to your attention and for us to think about it for a few moments. Um, Our husband has everlasting kindness towards us. Our husband is kind, loving and kind, patient and kind, thoughtful for our weaknesses and kind, sensitive to our needs and kind with it, gracious and tender, full of mercy, gentle, caring, sympathetic, and kind. And I say this to you who are tried and troubled at present. Do not doubt the loving kindness of your Saviour towards you. Do not doubt the loving kindness of your husband, Jesus Christ. Do not imagine that Christ's kindness extends only so far, but it has its limits. That it can ever reach an end. His is an everlasting kindness. He is kind when we are not. He is kind when we sin. He is kind when we doubt. He is kind when we fall. He is kind to grant us repentance and he is kind to receive us back with mercy and love. A few weeks ago as we were studying in our chapter, in, uh, in chapter 40, we read this. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. What a beautiful example to us the Lord is. 
What a beautiful example to us the Lord is. Don't, don't, don't come with your law. Don't come with your rules. Don't come, don't come with all these do this and do that to a child of God. Let the child of God look beyond Moses. Let the child of God look beyond the Ten Commandments. Let the child of God look to the Saviour. Let the child of God Look to the one who has everlasting kindness. And let us with Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 say, Be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let that be the standard of our conduct in this life. So many people want to tell us how we should live, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. How easy it all becomes a cause to be judgmental, a reason to chide and criticise and blame one another for not making the grade or for thinking ourselves better than someone else. But how much more lovely is the everlasting, tender-hearted kindness of our Saviour. How much more blessed to dwell in Christ where there is no condemnation and where there is no reproach. Does it sometimes feel as though the Lord hides himself from us? Do we sometimes feel a coldness in our spirits and a hardness in our hearts and think... We can't be saved or we would not think like this. We can't be the Lord's or we would not feel like this. Let me, let me explain that to you. Sometimes to remind us of God's loving kindness to us, he appears to withdraw himself that by his absence our hearts might grow fonder. He says to Isaiah in verse 8 and verse 10, joining just a couple of verses together, in a little wrath I hid my faith from thee. Not, not in anger, not in wrath, just a little wrath. I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. My kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. God's mercy flows from his love and his kindness, both of which are everlasting. And this will be evident in every situation into which we come, every situation into which the Lord brings us, every place of desolation, every trial, every persecution, every, every uh, uh, extreme adversity into which the Lord brings us. In living and in dying, Christ is our Redeemer and having redeemed us at the cost of his own blood, he will never leave us, he will never hurt us, he will never lose us. 
or ever allow us to suffer any harm that does not rather rebound to our greater good and his glory. What though I can't his goings see, nor all his footsteps find, too wise to be mistaken he, too good to be unkind. When Moses blessed the Lord's people in Deuteronomy chapter 33, he said, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Well, those arms are the arm of everlasting love and his arm of everlasting kindness. And they both are underneath us and they are both very suitable to lean upon. So here are the two things that we've had so far. The Lord is thy husband and the Lord Jesus Christ has a heart of everlasting kindness towards us. And here's a third point that I want to leave with you today. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord. How do I know if I'm a child of God? What if I'm a child of the devil? How can I be sure that I am a Christian when my own heart so often tells me I'm unworthy of Christ's love. Well, here's one test that we can all apply. Has the Lord taught you anything about the gospel? Answer that question in your own heart, in your own, in your own mind right now. Has the Lord taught you anything about the gospel? Has the Lord taught you anything about your sin? Has the Lord taught you anything about the cross and his atoning work? Has the Lord taught you anything about glory and judgment, about heaven and hell? Has the Lord taught you anything about the ground of a sinner's peace with God? Has he taught you anything about your abject spiritual need and condition without him? Has the Lord shown you how fearful it must be in the day of judgment to be without a saviour? Hmm. And where do you think you got all this knowledge? Was it by your own wisdom? I don't think so. Or as Jesus might say, I trow not. It is the Lord who teaches us our need before he supplies our need. It is the Lord who shows us what we need before he satisfies that need. It is he who opens the gospel to us, no one else. John Newton said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Conversion is a cleansing of our soul from guilt. It is a felt pardoning of our sins. But it is also teaching our heart 
in the ways of grace and in the ways of the Lord. Satan never taught you the gospel of free grace. Satan never taught you the preciousness or the efficacy of Christ's blood. It's a characteristic of God's people that they know the truth. It is a feature of faith that we have no confidence in ourselves, even as we are struggling to find any confidence in Christ. It's an indication and an evidence of spiritual life that we struggle with our own personal unworthiness. But it all shows that we have been taught of the Lord as every child of God must be and will be. So what have we been taught today? We have been taught that our maker is our husband and he has represented us for every spiritual need and obligation we ever had or ever shall have. We have been taught today that Christ has a heart of everlasting kindness for us and to us. Even when it seems we have lost sight of him, the mercies of our covenant God will never lose sight of us. And we have been taught that we shall all be taught of the Lord. And none of God's children will be left in the ignorance of sin or without the knowledge of his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.